All right, guys, we got another kind of episode of the COVID-19 effect that I've been doing with these like pivotal interviews. I'm trying to really get some different perspectives on the market right now, trying to really try to canvas all sides of this, because I think that, you know, obviously people are through this uncertainty are looking for some semblance of information to make sense of the situation. And I'm kind of been right now bringing on some different, definitely different perspectives than the original kind of first phase of this, where it was a lot of like CPG brands. And I wanted to bring on my, this is kind of make me sound like a little bit of a fanboy, but my favorite <laughs> uh, business writer for Forbes. And this is kind of how I got into Chris Walton's kind of ecosystem, I guess you could say. But um, I really you know, consume a lot of information. I consume a lot of things on Forbes a lot. And what I find is a lot of times there's not much personality in the, um, the way that the articles are written, especially on the business side of things. And I write with a lot of personality. I write like how I talk. And I appreciated uh, Chris's just pieces of, uh, because they were extremely insightful and, and forward looking and, and things that were people were not talking about a lot, but also was written in a way that was entertaining. Um, so this is Chris Walton, and basically, I, he'll give you his, his big bio, but um, he is the co-founder and, and co-CEO of Red Archer Retail, which is holds two other companies, correct? You have a blog, retail blog, Obni Talk, um, that is uh, kind of catching fire right now that you guys self-produce. You guys also do some videos and things on that one. Um, but you also have Third House, which is a, a retail tech lab, and a uh, it's like a CPG retail um, co-working space, right? So you have like a bunch of different businesses, um, but if people want to go a, a step further than this, I think you spent majority of your time when you weren't your own entrepreneur at a Target, right? Doing the store of the future, which uh, <laughs> uh, now people are probably seeing a lot of the work that you did uh, a couple years ago uh, come to life in some of the stores. So Chris, I appreciate you kind of stopping in and talking to my community and hopefully we'll get into some interesting conversations some insights and stuff around, uh, retail, what's going on with retail, uh, you know, strategy and, uh, what we kind of see in the future. Yeah, man. Hey, thanks for the introduction. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, God, where do I start? There are a couple of things. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks so much for, uh, kind of noticing the personality and the sense of humor on Forbes. That's, that's something we pride ourselves on. I think, uh, in the work we do, I, you know, number one, we pride ourselves on being retailers, which I think is important or having a background in the business, whereas, you know, most of the time journalists are journalists. And so being able to cut through, you know, what's a press release, what's something that people want to put out versus, you know, what are the real facts people need to know and, and trying to do that based on experience. And then, you know, talking about what the implications are and why, you know, certain bits of news are more important than others. Yeah. And then the second piece is we always try to do with a little humor. We always find that, so much of the writing is just devoid of humor. And at the end of the day, you know, we're writing about retail. Uh, and even though it's crazy times right now, there's a lot of fun stories. There's a lot of things that are uplifting. So let's try to bring that into it as much as we can. And, and at the end of the day, we're just real, real people too. So trying to always keep, you know, measured in, in how we approach things. But, but yeah, man, my background, um, 20 years, over 20 years in retail now at this point, uh, started my career at The Gap out in San Francisco after college. I uh, spent about four years there. Uh, working for them when Mickey Drexler was there, kind of the height of the gap, the khaki, khaki swing craze, excuse me, if you can remember that, if you're old enough to remember, I was living through that. Got to see the, the rise of the gap and the fall of the gap in about the same uh, four-year period of time. Uh, then went to business school and after business school, linked up with Target and at Target did almost every job under the sun. Spent a lot of time in merchandising, a lot of time, a lot of time in home furnishing specifically. 
but also went out to the field in my mid thirties out in Colorado and actually learned how to run stores. So I ran stores in uh, just south of Boulder for a bit of time and then uh, ran a district of stores in Northern Colorado, Wyoming, Nebraska, and South Dakota. Uh, I was in my car about 30,000 miles a year, but got to really see how retail works from that side of things. And then ended up coming back to Minneapolis and uh, was named the vice president of home furnishings for target.com. So I've got a unique experience of store operations, merchandising, e-commerce. And like you said, it all culminated uh, doing this project called the Target Store of the Future. Uh, and you're right. Uh, the cool thing about my writing right now, and we'll probably talk about this, is much of what I've learned, much of what I've worked on in the past, you're now seeing all the trends start to accelerate towards the adoption of a lot of the things we've been evangelizing or proselytizing, you know, based on our, our backgrounds. And by us, I mean my partner, Anne Mazing, and I, who also worked on Store of the Future with me. Um, that ended in 2017. And like you said, from there, we went out on our own and we started our own company, Red Archer Retail. And we really do two things. One, we have our blog, OmniTalk. I write for Forbes on a regular basis. I'm a senior contributor for them. Usually put out about five pieces a month or so. Uh, and then we do a lot of podcasts, a lot of interviews with tech CEOs that we think are changing the face of retail in terms of how it can work, retail and CPG. Uh, and then the other thing we do is we run a retail technology lab, as you mentioned, called Third House out of Minneapolis. And it is, it's exactly what you said. It's a it's a 8,000 square foot space. And the idea is it's a refuge or a physical place for retailers, brands and technology companies to come together to network, to co-work, uh, but really to immerse themselves in thought leadership and experimentation on how the future is going to play out. So we actually have about 4,000 square feet devoted solely to retail experimentation for anyone that wants to come in and use it. We do all of, all of our we do all of our content out of the space. We have our own podcast studio, which I'm missing immensely <laughs> right now, especially as I'm watching you with the big studio setup. Um, and uh, but yeah, man, that's so that's us. That's me in a nutshell. That's what we do on a on a on a daily basis. We just love retail. We love talking about it. And and God, man, there's a hell of a lot going on right now for sure. Yeah, and kind of dive in a little bit with uh, your business before we we kind of talk about other businesses. Um, you. With the content side, I, you mentioned, I mean, there's a ton of things going on. So I assume that part of your business is humming and, and kind of moving in, in such a fast pace. But then on the co-working space, you're obviously not at your co-working space right now. How no. are you guys kind of tackling tackling that? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that was part um, use for your own and part also business. So you were able to kind of make it work right now in the yeah. short term? Is that... Yeah, absolutely. No, it's actually been good for us too. I mean, on the content side, on the content side, it really hasn't changed that much. I would say we just, some of, I'd say the technical resources we have uh, to say produce quote unquote, uh, the content we do is probably a little less than we have normally. So the video quality is maybe not as good. The sound quality is maybe a little less, but overall it's actually uh, pretty similar. On the content side, things have actually been doing pretty well. So I wrote an article for Forbes uh, over the weekend that went viral and now has been viewed on Walmart that's now been viewed by 2 million people. That's wow. something that never had happened before. Uh, point of perspective, my previous high was probably 50,000 people. Mm. Um, and so, you know, you're talking just a massive factor in terms of, uh, you know, what's happening on the content side of things and just how pe engaged people are with the types of things we're talking about. Um, but yeah, on the corking side, yeah, that thing's shut down. Uh, you know, there's not much we can do with it right now. Fortunately, we've got an awesome landlord, so we're trying to work through things on that side. And then what we're trying to do is still, um, it's a membership-based model, so we're trying to make it still as valuable as possible for our members. So we're doing 
Um, we do a lot of what we call spotlight interviews uh, on the OmniTalk side of our business. So trying to bring that content in to showcase each of the members. Uh, we did that, for example, with a gentleman by the name of Jeremy Naren a couple of weeks ago, who's the CEO of a company called GrocerKey. Uh, they specialize in front ends and solutions for uh, regional grocers for e-commerce, as well as run the back end logistics. Um, and we sat down with him and we said, hey, you're in this for now the last three weeks. How's grocery changed from your perspective being on the front lines in a startup? And it was a fascinating conversation. So we're trying to create content like that for our members, help them to get to know each other, help them network, um, and also really help them tell their story, not only to each other, but nationally. So, um, you know, uh, people get to know who Jeremy is and what his company does, which is also really valuable to them. So th that's what we're focused on on that side as we just kind of tread water here, hopefully, until, uh, you know, everything gets back to as close to normal as possible. Yeah, I mean, that's super cool, especially because you're, you know, thinking ahead of everything and trying to figure out how do we, ex you know, still create value here, um, even when our physical space is, is kind of closed down, is there mm -hmm. still some opportunity to, to create this virtually? And I think that you're seeing a lot of people really use this constraint as an opportunity to do a ton of creativity. I, I know with my clients, yeah. I, use, I use use this weird term of, I always say like frugality is like the ultimate form of creativity. And a lot of people always bring that back to like, I'm just a cheap person. But I, I like to add constraints into the system constantly because I think the easiest way is just to overspend. And you can easily do a lot of things if you have a ton of money. But if you don't have money, what then do you actually have to do to be creative? Like, how do you do this? So it's kind of this weird like, way that I always build in the clients of like making them have to be a little bit more agile and nimble all the time and not necessarily they have to, but right now it, it's useful because there is this huge constraint that's in front of you and you're like, I have to get around it. How do I get around this? hundred percent. I think you and I, we were talking before we started to, I mean, I think you and I are cut from the same cloth. I think creativity comes from constraint. I mean, I think that's just, it's just a good thing to always live by. Um, I mean, the way we started the business, I started in a coffee shop. I just was like, hey, one day I'm going to start a blog. I feel like I have some interesting stories to tell. Next thing I knew, people are reading it. I was doing it every week, Forbes calls, and I'm writing for them. We start doing podcast content. I mean, we've gotten to the point where we have, I mean, if I step back and think about it, 2 million views on one one freaking article. I mean, we have we don't hardly spend anything on marketing at this point. So it's all just word of mouth and trying to get as creative as you can to tap into the audience and what they want to hear um, and build that community around what you're trying to do. I, 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 to me, it's, a, it's, it's inspiring to think that way, like you just said. Um, and I think you're right. I think the other point is it's also, I think the right way to go about the business is always think with a kind of almost constrained mentality. Yeah. And, and kind of diving into why I think, you know, you get up to those 2 million views is right now we were kind of mentioning that there's not really like a playbook. There's not something no. that you can, look back to, I know a lot of people are trying to pull references from the financial crisis, or maybe they're trying to even pull it from further back. But I, I don't know if there's all that much continuance of that or, or things that you could pull from it that actually make a lot of sense because of the complete like stay at home orders and, and things that are just like completely rocking any ability for people to pull types of things. And I think moving into some of the other businesses and, and retail businesses, I know where we kind of cross um, a lot is towards like, you know, CPG retail, grocery mass, you know, some of yep. those like uh, more, um, I, you know, I try not, I try not to talk too much about re or uh, apparel and stuff like that, even though um, I know a little bit about it, but I, I try to, I, I keep that to, to people like you that know that stuff a lot. <laughs> oh, I, don't know, I don't know if either one of us is the clothes horse <laughs> for that subject, but. <laughs> but 
um, what are you seeing? Like, I mean, I know you're just talking yeah. about Walmart in general. I mean, what are you seeing from just like the state of CPG retail? Um, just like on a macro view, like, are you seeing some some things that you've been keeping an eye on that you're like, wow, now this is really creating some interesting things to look at for the future? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, gro- it's funny. It's a good question too because grocery. I would have said even like four or five weeks ago before all this started, grocery was going to change faster than everything else. Um, it was starting to happen. It was starting to bubble up. Um, you were seeing big increases in like just what studies were reporting in terms of the e-commerce adoption for that category since it had never really happened and it was starting, you know, it was starting to pop, so to speak. You know, what the what the virus has done is essentially just accelerated that. Um, and so I think you're seeing that in a number of fronts. And some crazy statistics that I've been taking a lot of inspiration from. I read something, I think it was produced by Fabric the other day, one of the micro fulfillment companies out in the marketplace for grocers. Um, they did a study and they say now 52% of Americans have now tried e-groceries in the last, you know, based on the activity over the last few weeks. But the crazy part about that is 48% of the country still hasn't. Yeah. Uh, And so that's still going to accelerate based on what's going on. Uh, There's still also systemic issues there. Um, I actually have a piece into an editor right now about how important this is, about, you know, people that are on the SNAP program, i.e. food stamps, uh, can't buy products online. Um, so that still holds part of America back. Those types of things are going to change. If you think about it, they, that, those types of populations, you get it too, because, you know, they're as busy as anyone, if not more yeah. busy. And so it, it, it can be a great facilitator for getting things done in everyone's life. So I think you're going to start to see that. Um, the other things you're starting to see pop contactless payments, which is something we've been all about. Uh, Walmart's rolled that out now with Walmart pay. But I think you'll see better adoption of like Apple Pay, Samsung's Pay, Samsung Pay, excuse me, things like that. Things where you just don't have to touch anything. You know, that yeah. just seems natural and endemic to what we're talking about. Um, you know, and then from there, it's just, I think, a continuation of other things. So you're seeing pickup start to happen a lot more, buy online, pick up in store. Uh, like Walmart today, I think even just announced they're now making Snap available for pickup. You can't use it online in most states, but now you can use it for pickup. So that's yeah, a huge kind of intersection of these yeah. these changing dynamics. Um, and it's a safer way to shop. They've got dedicated hours for pickup with seniors too. So a lot of cool things are happening in that space. That'll just evolve to the point where we start to be able to pick up in more places everywhere. Buy online, pick up in stores, the acronym. I start saying buy online, pick up in something or in somewhere because that could really be anywhere we want it to be and the infrastructure will start to take hold on that as well so those are the things i think you're going to see in the near term as this starts to kind of uh get further along its progression say a year year and a half down the line you'll see bigger movements towards things like uh amazon ghost style full checkout free systems where you don't really need people at all you just come in walk in take out whatever you want um, you know, and then eventually you'll start to see more robots moving in to take the the place of workers so that workers can be redeployed into the activities where maybe they're safer or where they can better be used as well too than say what they're actually asked to do right now. So especially on the delivery side. So so that's where I see things headed um, at a very like 60,000 square foot view or not square feet, but high level view of, you know, what's happening in the market. Yeah, I think the, the you know, buy online, pick up in store, um, idea. I think it kind of tr- transforms into this idea of, you know, do we move into like dark um, grocery stores? You know, this right. idea that where they basically, I think maybe Kroger or somebody had mm-hmm. kind of just recently done something where it's only a pickup location. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's where, you know, it moves into this idea of like, does it become like 
drive-through grocery stores that you just come and you know pick up your stuff that a robot fills in for you. There's no touch points or anything like that. I find this kind of moves all that forward a few years because I've been saying for the longest time, like the the physical Walmart already looks like a warehouse anyways. Like you just, oh, yeah. you basically just change out the shelving um, and you put some robotic uh, elements in there and you use the, you know, the car service thing in the back. Maybe you create something where it's like a drive through area and it's like, it's the easiest thing. You just take away all human elements of everything. Yeah. But it's yeah. kind of like when you start going down those paths, I don't know if when I talk to people about this, even like clients, mm -hmm. they think, I mean, a futuristic Josh, what do you, this isn't happening. I don't know if you ever get a little bit of that, but, but I'm always like, no, this is closer than what I think you guys think it's happening. I, I don't know if people are seeing like this period, I think speeds everything up at least two years, like this yeah. past month and a half is two years, three years ahead of time. Yeah, for sure. I think the funny thing about what you're saying too, and I, whatever I, cause I get that too, is I think just look at what the word store is. Store is, is derived from store of inventory, right? It's is that a store is a, it's hundred percent. It's a warehouse. And the shopper has acted as the default warehouse picker and last mile delivery driver for years. And there's people like you and me who are like, why the hell do I still want to play that role? It doesn't make any sense. Um, and so I think, I, I think you're right. I, now, do I think it's going to be this impersonal, completely robotic experience? No. Do I believe in dark stores? Actually, not really. I think I believe in them right now from a public health and safety perspective um, for retailers, if they have the right amount of density and a given geographic footprint. But in reality, no, the, the, the right answer is the best of both worlds, where you can collate in, inventory for both types of shopping experiences, and then you can get closer to the consumer from a last mile perspective. And then you can use robotics in the back of house to pick and pack orders more efficiently, and possibly even set up superstructures in the parking lots that enable curbside delivery through automation as well. You're starting to see some of that in Europe. That's how you get the return on investment in terms of the real estate, in terms of the inventory, in terms of the operations. Dark stores, I think, are hard to pencil on their own. And it's kind of a, like you said, almost a unique one-off experience. Um, but the other option where you're kind of blending the best of both worlds, which is starting to be put in practice with companies like Takeoff Technologies and Domatics working with Amazon Go reportedly in LA, like that stuff for sure, 100% that could happen. And in reality, had this not happened, Amazon was supposed to open that store yeah. this spring is what the reported news was. You would have probably seen it pretty quickly too. So yeah, it's coming. I guess with the talking about just the Amazon point at the end here with the cashier list kind of, I mean, I went through one of the Amazon Go experiences. I personally loved it. Um, they, I wish there was some in Austin, yeah. Uh, yeah, because, ditto. but there's not, you know, but mm -hmm. um, I think that we were kind of on the same wavelength, I think, around that that technology was going to be something that was the, the tech was going to be used by everybody. It, it didn't necessarily it wasn't going to be the Amazon's winning proposition, but they just right. were going to be the ones that ended up uh, packaging it up and, and being able to probably sell it like a, a web services type of a, a function of their business. Uh, but with all the kind of like negative stuff that was happening from like local and state um, governments, like trying to restrict some of those businesses, do you think that then they're going to have maybe the people that are lobbying for it? Do you think they're going to have something from like a public health standpoint now to like go against maybe some of those points? Like, because I think a lot of them were, mm. you you, you were touching on like, you know, the issues with snap and, and things. And I think they're, they're trying to obviously guard against lower income people that maybe don't have access to banking or, or whatever, sure. where they, they, they still want to use cash, um, mm -hmm. where now cash is dirty cash. Is, you know what I mean? It's one of these things where like, 
people they're telling you not to use cash (laughs) so it's kind of like the the point the counterpoint is like already uh, the wave is coming up and maybe it's going to hit hit them in the face like i don't know if you think that maybe it's going to help them or this is just i always think it's just slowing the inevitable but i i I don't know if this actually helps it speed up a little bit again yeah no i think it does actually that's a it's another article that's been kind of sitting in the back of my mind that i just haven't had a chance to write is like it's easy to talk about amazon and how this is accelerating e-commerce it's accelerating grocery The part that I don't think is being talked about enough is what you're hitting on, which is it's actually going to accelerate Amazon in the physical world too. Um, And it's on two fronts. One, it's going to be Amazon Go. You're right because check out free technology that they understand and they know how to do. They have 26 stores right now for my last count. Um, Not sure if they, I don't think they put out any recently, but that gives them a tremendous advantage. That technology is complicated, computer vision, AI to make that happen. The more stores they have, the better those systems get. No one else has anything. So they're way in front of everyone on that. And the stores can take cash too. If they get mandated to take cash, they will. They do in New York. So there's there's really no slowing that down. And so, you know, given the virus, people are going to gravitate towards that. I had an intern on my show the other day, our intern, I asked her, I said, you know, given the choice, would you walk into this store or that or, or a traditional store, given what's happening? She's like, yeah, for sure. I'm going to go in the checkout free store. But the other place it gives them advantages on their actual grocery store. Um, you know, I was hearing rumors. I was hearing rumors that that store was possibly going to be delayed. Uh, that it, in LA, that it was going to open their first new concept grocery store. And this is the best thing that could happen to them because it gives them more time. Yeah. There's now reports that they may uh, open up windows of time for people to come and shop in that store. It's already being used as a dark store reportedly. But now they can kind of work out the kinks of how that whole thing works. They can get into grocery in their own way outside of Whole Foods. And they're going to have a lot of time to do that and to learn that and experiment with everything that's going on in terms of how people want to shop now. Who else is getting that chance, right, without the burden of the existing infrastructure that they have? So Amazon could come out of this really strong. The question for Amazon is just what happens to their brand during this time? Yeah. Um, you know, cause they're a little bit almost like where's Waldo in this whole thing compared to some of the other people that are really making a name for themselves in grocery, you know, at the regional level, like an HEB or Walmart nationally. Um, so yeah, we'll see how it plays out. Yeah. The Amazon is, is been this kind of target or beacon of like both greatness during this period, but also like mm-hmm. the, the other side of it where you're getting, um, you know, like a lot of negativity towards it. And I was, um, just putting out an article recently around the closure of the one I think was maybe in Kentucky or something. They had to close down for a little bit of time over the um, infected, um, some of the warehouse workers. Right. And I started talking about more towards like what you mentioned around like robotics and automa- automation in the sense of that there's an element that happens with robotics and everything. The, the negative press is that it takes away jobs, uh, human right. jobs. Um, you know, and then there's the, now what's going on is that humans are in the front line and that more humans are needed on the front line to take up all this extra need and demand. Uh, so you're putting more people in, in, in harm's way, uh, where robots d- don't get sick. They don't, you know, they mm-hmm. don't, they could end up helping, uh, during this time. And I, I was starting to think about Amazon being, you know, one, one distribution center doesn't make a difference. You know, they just divert some things and does, it's just a speed bump for them. Mm-hmm. Um, probably not even a speed bump. Probably not. They probably don't even notice it. It's like hitting a coin on a highway or something, but the, uh, right. the, 
you end up thinking like a little bit more downstream. You start to think like, okay, what about some of like maybe the meat processors? What about some of the you know contract manufacturers? You start like you start to think about like what happens when it's like a true like fast paced pandemic where like it closes down the whole supply chain where then people can't get food. Or they can't get um, they can't get basic supplies. They can't get anything like that where it's completely restricted. Then it starts to me. I think like this idea of like robotics and and what Amazon ultimately probably wants to to do, um, but has been slower to do it because of the public perception. I think it gives them a little bit more leeway to be quicker on those things because you can point now to a, a you know, a reference point. You go, look at this. This could happen again. It's more than likely gonna happen again. We have to plan for this for the good of the world, a good of America. Uh, you know what I mean? I think there's like these weird points that you can bring back up now that you're like, you weren't able to do before because you didn't have any point to, to, to bring up where now I yeah. think there's these, these very strong points that this pandemic is happening. And you're like, yeah, I, here, this is why I'm doing this. And you don't, you get a little more, uh, I guess like leeway with the public, I guess. Yeah, no, that's right. It's actually, you're, you're kind of solidifying something in my mind as you're talking. I mean, I think you're seeing the convergence of really three factors. You're seeing the convergence of the safety concern. You're, con you're seeing the convergence actually of, in some instances, deploying robotics or some type of, you know, artificial intelligence-based automation like Amazon Go um, is a better consumer experience. So that's the second piece. And then third, there's probably financial implications for many people to think about how to redeploy, you know, the expense associated with whatever those work centers are, or cost centers are to make them more efficient. Um, and you can you can try to push against that. But with those three things happening, it's pretty hard. And if you look, at, I think throughout the course of history, technology has always, you know, increased in some way or innovated in some way. I think the better kind of psychological way I like to think about it so that we don't get trapped and they're like, hey, it's taking jobs. It's what jobs are they doing? What jobs do we need people doing? And let's think about the right answers to those questions. And so for me, the question of robotics comes down to as you really look, as you step back and look at the entire economy, what we're really starting to see is you're moving where people are needed. You're moving from before we had an economy where so much of the activity was based on getting people to buy. It's what I call the pre-purchase economy. Now we're actually moving to where the high touch service is starting to happen post-purchase. So at pickup, at return, at customer service. And so there's still going to be, there's still going to need to be just as many people that help with that. Like you're going to need a lot more warehouse workers. You're going to need a lot more customer service people, a lot more people taking returns or helping people at a store level to do those types of things. The work is still there. It's just how we redeploy it and carve it up. And I think the other part is what skills and training need to happen as we make that shift so that people are apt and able to do it as well. That's the key crux of it. The hard part with robotics is a lot of times where you can de deploy robotics, it's in places where the jobs aren't even happening and being done today. Yeah. Um, you look at the first robotic implementations in stores, they're, they're, they're checking floors for spills all day long. That's all they're doing. There isn't a single person, any retailer that's doing that job. Yeah. And yet people get freaked out about it. It's just, it's just not, you know, it's not rational in, you know, in some ways to think about it, but that's fundamentally what's going on. And yeah, the convergence of those three, three streams, I think is, is going to push it faster. Yeah. I guess when you were talking about, um, a lot of like the, the, the new touch points in terms of like the closer towards the end of the purchase, um, I started to think about, 
with some of like the CPG brands that I work with. And I always talk about, um, the product is like the entry fee. Um, you know, everything that's built off the product is what actually creates the difference. It's like the brand experience of the community building. It's the, you know, the feeling that somebody gets off of that product. That's usually what ends up differentiating you and actually what wins in the market because now there's so much low barriers of entry. And I think it's the sim similar on the retail front. Like everybody can offer a very similar retail experience. I think that there's a playbook that you go through, but then there's this element where, you know, if that person that you are driving up and getting your groceries from at, at Walmart is the nicest person ever and, and helping you through this new process and whatever, like that ultimately is what won the customer for life now. Like it's not the, the, the low price. It's not the quality or selection or whatever, because everybody has the same similar selection, similar pricing, similar whatever. But it's mm -hmm. that last touch point that builds that community or that like, connection, I mm -hmm. think, that's like missing um, with a lot of the um, a lot of businesses overall. They're just kind of like always defaulting to these like areas that it seems like everybody's doing similar things. Uh, it's I don't know. It's just like the sea of sameness, I guess, is the, the kind of term of, that I always try to use. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, you're 100%. There's actually a piece that I wrote recently on Starbucks around this very thing that I'm, that I'm really proud of. And actually, the inspiration comes from my partner, Anne. But she and I went and visited. Um, Starbucks has a pickup-only store in Manhattan where the only way you can get the coffee is you have to order it on your mobile phone ahead of time. And I do a lot of speaking throughout the country and I always talk about Starbucks, what they're doing with their mobile app, their pickup capabilities. And I would tell you it's the most controversial part of any speech I give. And, and a lot of people get really angry with me and they'll say, you know, well, I want to talk to the barista. I want to talk to human. And to your point, I always go, well, do you really? Because I just did this experience. I didn't talk to anyone again, pre-purchase, but then I go into the Starbucks store, I grab my coffee. And to your point, that experience was amazing. The gentleman that helped me with my coffee was super nice. I talked to him for a long time. He was interested about me. I was interested in him. And that was still just as good and just as strong of a Starbucks experience on the human level as it was when you think about how it's always been done, which is me transcribing my order for someone else to put into a machine. And so it just changes and challenges the way we think about, well, where does human, really inter human interaction really matter when it gets down to how brands are built? I think the smart companies are going to start to think about it in that way. Um, yeah. And that's why Walmart's been getting a lot of press during coronavirus. They are trying to move in that direction. Yeah, I've seen them really focus. And that's probably from a national level because, I, I mean, I'm in here yeah, in Austin. Sure. We have H, you know, HEB. HEB. Very great. From what I'm seeing from, obviously, the other regional ones and some of the national ones, like, they're, they were far ahead of this from everybody else. It seems like they kind of had some models that work. They've been putting in a lot of policies and procedures that – um, seem to be working for the communities in which they're at. Um, I think it helps because they're kind of you're in one you're in one kind of state and one type of like person. I think you you can really carve in and like know that one customer over like if you're Kroger and you have all these different banners across different states and regions and you you know you're trying to cater to so many different people. Where I think Texans and I'm not an original Texan, but I, I find that you know there's a commonality in there that I think that people they can wrap their heads around. I think HEB obviously knows them better than anybody else. So it's, it's been something where they've done a good job, but I think Walmart from a national level has really done a good job at like explaining, or like, I guess re-explaining their community aspect, like, because mm -hmm. I think they've always been a part of that, but I think it's, it got lost in the consumerism, like, you know, trying to be the biggest, baddest dog in the, in the race for so long. Now they're saying, let's pull this all back to like, you know, Sam Walton, 
back in the day, like, like yeah. what he was all about, you know, going right back to the roots. And, it, and it's interesting that they it took this to go back to that. I mean, I think they've always been trying to go back to that. But this has been like their defining moment to like go back to that culture, that legacy that they started with. Yeah, man, you're giving me a lot of good fodder for stuff. I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing that, no, you are, it's like, all these different, we're going to see all these yeah, different, like, we're writing notes pieces. as we talk, but like, no, I think what you're hitting on is, and it's, it's something that's been peppering around in my mind is, yeah, it's regional at scale. Like Walmart's point of differentiation against Amazon, as is being made clearly evident right now, is the regional community-based aspect of what they do at scale. Are they perfect at it? No, it's been three or four or five weeks, whatever it is, but they're going to get better. And now is actually hastening walmart's ability to talk to their consumers in that way um the coolest part of that comment though was i had because i have to ask since you're not a native texan does that mean you don't have a flag in your house because every texan i've ever met has a flag in their house <laughs> i do not know that's that's the funniest thing ever because i i, I don't know why the, the, the I, I don't i'm coming from ohio like there wasn't many ohio where you're from. flags yeah that's where i was from and like yeah, we had an Arizona was, flag. even though it's a yeah. cool flag uh, like but when I lived in Colorado before this, like people were really big about the flag there. I think yeah, the yeah, flag yeah. is cool looking, yeah, uh, but yeah. but definitely in Texas, like man, it's like every single house that I've ever been into, every single business, every single like. There's some either some big Longhorns or there's some. some yeah. uh, <laughs> watch now, now every one of my Texas clients are gonna be like, dude, we we gotta end this. We gotta end this contract now. You've been talking bad about our people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, hey, like I said, I gotta bring the humor at least a little bit, but that's always that always pops into my mind. One thing I I did want to touch on before before I let you go. Um, yeah. Because we did talk about uh, we were talking about Walmart, and and I know they just kind of did this, and you uh, were at Target, so they're kind of instituted this was around like. Some of the restrictions, um, and I and I don't really want to talk about what mm. those restrictions are because those are that's it is what it is. But I think like what is the actual what is that accelerating? What is that causing like in the future? Because I think for me, like if I had to one wait in line to go to the grocery store, or two, I, I was only allowed to go down certain aisles in certain directions or whatever that was. Like to me, that's oh. a, a completely non like convenient experience for me. I'm not even going to even consider going there anymore because I don't want to waste my time. I'd rather just then go online um, yeah. or figure out some other way to like hack the system to like yeah. get through this. Because for me, my time is worth something. So I don't want to sit there and do that. Do you think that has some effect to like even accelerating some of the things we've been talking about even more? Is that like, why are they, I guess, why are they doing this first of all, because do they want to accelerate all that? I, I, I don't know if that's even in their mind. Are they thinking that way? Because I, I just think they're not really ready for how fast this is all moving already. So why even accelerate it even more? Yeah, it's, I think it's a complicated question. I think there's a lot of layers to it. I think it's actually why you saw Walmart CEO Doug McMillan on the Today Show on Friday saying, hey, everyone, pace out your orders. You know, don't pantry load. Uh, because the complicating factor to it is e-commerce can't catch up, right? Yeah. The inventory is not positioned that way. E-commerce has to get set up to then be able to handle the movement that you would just naturally think is going to happen. And until it does, it's problematic because... People are ordering things. They're not getting what they expected. So that causes some anxiety or panic. Um, you go and you try to pick up your order at any retailer and you find out when you get there, it's not available. So psychologically, there's still an aspect of, well, sh you know, crap, do I want to deal with that? Or do I just want to go in the store and be able to find what I can find and take the health risk, health risk that's associated with that? But I think to your point, the rational side of all of this is, well, that's not a safe behavior to be doing. Um, and so the best thing that you can do right now, especially 
given that's still a factor that, like we said, there's still communities of people that have not either that are not skilled at shopping online, say older generations, or just can't, because again, we talked about Snap, you can't, you can't shop online, then the store still has to be that option for people that's there. And so what you're seeing right now is, okay, how do we just still do what's right for employees and, and customers in that, in that environment? So it's, you know, traffic meter, metering into stores, it's plexiglass shields at the cash registers, you're starting to see computer systems put into place to monitor how many people are actually in the store at any given time. You're going to see that continue until we can get to kind of a stasis level of e-commerce and ordering behavior where people are doing it continuously and that's just what they prefer. But there's still quite a few people that, you know, to what degree is this, is the virus important? To what degree do I want it to impact my life? Do I want to get back out and, and, and physically shop? That that's still important to them too. So it's going to take a long time to filter through this. Um, but man, it's kind of crazy that we're talking about all this in just like a month's period of time. I was telling a story the other day around like when kind of the coronavirus started to appear into my personal or I guess my professional life first. Um, and it, there was a time around like six weeks where I was getting some kind of inquiries, but it wasn't at the point where it was taking so much noticeable time out of my kind of day to day. And then all of a sudden, like around late February, it like just took over. That was everything yeah. that was and it. Just like from that point on to like now six weeks, you look at that. And if you, if you take a you know, snapshot of what your life was like professionally, personally, or whatever, um, you know, a little bit after maybe Valentine's day and you look at it from where it is today, you're like, it doesn't even resemble anything that's close to it. It's just, it's just amazing how quick everything has fundamentally changed. And I know you and I, we both are looking at this from the real, you know, thing that it's, it's just terrible and it's whatever, but there's also for, for us that are, that like to, to kind of look at data and look at trends and look at like, what's it like, this is a probably one of the most unique periods of time ever that we can look at things and go, wow, like this is like showing us so many weird, like indicators of like what could be like, it, I don't yeah. know for me, I've been firing like at all cylinders. Cause I'm like, wow, like I'm, I'm starting to see like behavioral patterns and, and sequences of things. And I'm like, these things didn't exist a little bit of time ago. Like people that always had these like crazy, um, I'll never do this. I'll, you know, like, this is yeah. crazy. And now all of a sudden they're like, they're doing things and you're like, Oh, like it, maybe you didn't have the strong, you know, the idea of what you were going to do, what you weren't going to do, um, like you thought you did. Now there's like yeah. these, I don't know, it's just been this kind of crazy period for me that I've been looking at and going like, it's just terrible, but also like for me professionally has been like, wow, this is this is a crazy time. Yeah, dude, totally. I, that's, I had somebody tell me like a week ago because I was kind of down. I was like, okay, gosh, what do we do? He's like, you've been writing about this stuff for two, three years. Like go out and write about it more and do it in a way that truly helps people. And that's, that's what I've been trying to do. And I think that's, you know, I think that's why some of what we've written lately has done really well is like, we've been trying to take the approach of, okay, how do we get inspired by our work? How do we try to make a difference? Um, and now my wife is like, dude, you just got to keep writing, like, just keep going and keep saying like, you know, why things are better and why are there different ways to shop that people should explore because, you know, it keeps people safe. And so that's what we've been trying to focus on. I think, I think you're right. And that, if you keep that mindset, it can be a little tiring because yeah. <laughs> it keeps you busy, yeah. but but it's goddamn important at the end of the day. So that's what we're trying yeah. to do. Well, I appreciate all the time, Chris. If people want to follow you um, or some of the businesses, how could they do that? 
Yeah, absolutely. The best way is really is just to go to our blog, uh, subscribe to our blog. It's omnitalk.blog. You get all of our content there, podcasts, all of our writing. Um, and of course, you can always find me on LinkedIn too, Chris Walton on LinkedIn.